I talked to a lot of young female founders and in the early days you don't have money to pay to acquire customers and I always say like write really engaging emails that will you know inspire and attract your audience and then write content that's going to help with SEO because that stuff it doesn't cost a lot. Social media is a powerful tool to promote your business and its products. But what happens when you actually can't use big platforms like Facebook to advertise your specific products? Meet Polly Rodriguez, CEO of Unbound, an online shop with intimate offerings, sex toys, and so much more. She's met this challenge head on and has lots to say about the journey. Coming up, you'll hear Polly share how she looks at hiring the right people, her admirable hustle, even working multiple jobs before she launched her business, how she met her business partner at a meetup, how her own health challenges impacted her entrepreneurial spirit and mission, the challenge of raising money in what's essentially a boys club, and how she never gave up. This is the Entreprenista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Polly, you started out working in consulting. How did you go from working at a big consulting firm to, to starting your own business? Yeah, it wasn't an, a direct leap for sure. I worked at a dating startup in between, but I think throughout my career in life, I've always been looking for the meritocracy and struggled to find it. So I worked um, on Capitol Hill for Senator Claire McCaskill, and then I worked at Deloitte Consulting, and then I worked at a Y Combinator dating startup. And all throughout the way, I just experienced either a lack of change that was fast enough or work that was meaningful enough or just nepotism. And so I think ultimately I ended up being an entrepreneur just because I felt like it was the most efficient way to create the change I wanted to see in the world. Were you looking for something to start or did you have, you know, this aha moment like this is what I need to do? I need to quit the job I'm at right now? Oh, God, no. Um, I think I think there's this fear of self-doubt of like – and it's also one of those things where – you're scared to tell people you're like, I'm becoming an entrepreneur, right? Because it's like, there's such a high probability that you'll fail that it's like, you kind of do it as like a side hustle for a while to see if it's going to work out. But then the first customers you can only get are your friends. So you have to like con them into buying your stuff. (laughs) So I actually met my co-founder at a women's group. It was like a women in tech meetup in New York. And um, she had been working on a subscription box um, for adult toys, sexual wellness products. And was just doing it on nights and weekends. And it happened to be something that I was very passionate about as well. And so we started working on it together. But there was never like this moment where I woke up and was like, this is what I'll do. Um, Just happened organically. Yeah. And I think like really good entrepreneurs are able to have a like kernel of an idea. And then, you know, through iteration with your customers and feedback, the idea grows and evolves. Like we've changed our business model three times before. So how quickly after you met your co-founder did you just jump into business with her? Well, I was an idiot. So I, <laughs> I had saved I had saved like $5,000 from working at my previous startup. What now. year is this? This is 2014. Okay. 
And I had saved up $5,000 and I was like, this will be enough to last me to where I can get to, to where I can grow unbound to where it'll be profitable and it will sustain my income and like my livelihood. And that was just like the most naive notion in the world. I burned through that money within like three months and then I had to get two part-time jobs and yeah, it just, it took way longer than I would have ever imagined to where the business grew to a point where it could actually like support an income and a lifestyle. But um, it was years before either of us were full-time on Unbound. What was your business partner doing at the time? And then how did you balance when you were working on the business versus working your full-time jobs? It was, oh my God, it was brutal. Um, (laughs) She had her own styling business, which was really great because there would be days where she was on set all day, but um, the other days of the week she could be working on Unbound completely. Whereas I worked part-time at a development shop doing marketing and business development. And um, they were really great. They were just flexible with me where I was like, I only really want to work 30 hours a week. And then on the weekends, I would work different events, um, actually selling raffle tickets where I had to wear like this dorky headset and like a cummerbund. And it was like the most humiliating experience, but it was also really humbling. And Mm -hmm. I think in retrospect, I wish that I wouldn't have felt so embarrassed. Like, I remember one time I was working at a gala and my ex-boyfriend, it was like a $2,000 ahead gala and my ex-boyfriend walks in and I'm so embarrassed to be, you know, like in this, like, like selling raffle tickets, right? And I like backed up because I was so embarrassed and I tripped over all of these baby strollers that were there and it was all throughout the, like it made such a scene that throughout the whole night, everybody kept coming up to me being like, that was such a bad fall. Like, are you okay? This sounds like an episode of like, gossip girl (laughs) it was it was terrible but I think like you know you have to do what it takes to make ends meet and you have to kind of get over that element of pride because you're also the person that's like you know taping boxes shut answering customer service emails like there's there's very little glamour in the first two three years of a startup and I think that like that's something founders don't talk about that often what would you say has been the biggest challenge now that you have found your steady path yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they're the they're the challenges all startups face, scaling, people, growth. And then I think they're the challenges that are unique to the category that we're in, which is most specifically the inability to advertise on most platforms. So because we're sexual health and wellness focused on women, we're not allowed to advertise on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, the subway, any platform that most startups are allowed to wear banned from. Despite the fact that erectile dysfunction companies, um, condom companies are allowed to advertise. So it's a really outdated sexist policy that allows for one but not the other. Have you talked to Facebook to try to fight this and what's happened? Yeah, it's just nobody wants to die on that hill. I think that they're dealing with so much I mean, they're like, I talked to their global head of compliance and she was like, I agree with you that these policies need to be updated and changed, but we're also kind of like trying to not you know, destroy the the American democracy and figure out how to deal with fake news and all this stuff. So she was like, in the world of priorities from a compliance perspective, this is just never going to be a top priority. And so it was super disappointing, but it's just a matter of like, they don't 
have to change the policies, and so there's very little. How are you getting around this challenge in marketing your business? We've grown almost entirely through really strong content, through email marketing, through our online magazine on our website, through referral and word of mouth, and through SEO. So getting really smart at writing content that captures long-tail searches because 89% of millennials Google their sexual health and wellness questions. So it's a matter of understanding what our target demographic, which is generally millennial and Gen Z women, are searching on Google and then writing content that captures those searches, drives to the top of the search results, and then also highlights product in the content. So we it took a long time. It took years to even like build up the SEO so that that would drive traffic. How did you learn everything? Did you work with an agency or are you guys just self-taught? No, we couldn't afford yeah. that. I feel like SEO is one of those things where like everybody – nobody really knows how, how it works exactly, but I think it's a matter of just – Really understanding like keyword searches and 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 teaching yourself, mm-hmm. watching a lot of YouTube videos and just trial and error. No, it's so true. When we first started the business, we knew how important search would be for people to find our agency. So we spent a lot of time and effort really understanding the algorithm and blogging and finding out what people are searching for and creating content around those search terms. So we did the exact same thing and, it's, and still do it. And it's so smart, right? Because it's like it's evergreen content. It lives on forever. It doesn't cost you a lot. And there are analytics on the back end where you can literally measure, like, how well is this working, yes or no. And so I always – I think – I talk to a lot of young female founders. And in the early days, you don't have money to pay to acquire customers. And I always say, like, write really engaging emails that will, you know, inspire and attract your audience. And then write content that's going to help with SEO because that stuff, it doesn't cost a lot. So what was the first iteration of your business? Because you said it's really evolved over the past couple mm-hmm. of years. What did it start as and how did you figure out when you needed to pivot? It started as a uh, subscription box that was once every three months. It was really focused on couples and it was focused on introducing a product category that we realized a lot of people were either intimidated or embarrassed or just overwhelmed to shop in. And so this was also in like the heyday of Birchbox and Ipsy and some of the other subscription box services. And so it was really hard because we get a lot of pushback from investors where they'd be like, well, I guess there's a subscription for everything now. And it was like, there was a, there still is a really real use case for people, especially um, male partners who don't want to shop in the category to just subscribe and sign up who are overwhelmed and have paradox of choice. And we did that for the first, I mean, we still have the subscription today, but in doing that, we got customer feedback that was, you know, I don't necessarily want to stay subscribed forever because these are durable goods as opposed to like a consumable product mm-hmm. like BarkBox. Your pet's going to probably chew those toys up. Hopefully you're not chewing up your vibrator. Um, <laughs> hey, you never know. Yeah. Well, we do, we do have like a dog policy because it's an issue where if like your dog chews up your vibrator, you could take a photo and we'll give you like a new one or a discount because um, so that actually happens a lot. But. <laughs> Doesn't Warby Parker have a a policy like that? Well, my husband went to get glasses recently, uh-huh. and our dog actually ate his glasses. And he told the um, person who works at Warby Parker, she's like, "Oh, we'll give you a discount. We're going to waive the shipping fee for you." Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, so I think they have some type of policy there. So it's good. Yeah, a lot of people dogs. Half the country dogs. It goes a long way. Um, but yeah, the subscription started. We were buying other people's products because we just didn't have the money yeah. to make our own. And the minimum orders when you go to make your own product are pretty high. So. We did that and customers were like, yeah, the subscription's great, but if I find like a lubricant I like or a condom brand I like or, you know, even like a brand for vibrators I like, I'd really rather be able to shop a la carte. And so at that point, 
I had taken out like five or six credit cards in my name and we went out and bought like a really small subset of inventory and opened up an e-commerce shop, still fulfilling it all in my apartment, right? So like just thousands and thousands. Are we 2015 now? What year is um, this? This is 20, yeah, this is 2015 going into 2016. Okay. And I'm storing all this in like my apartment. My roommates are like ready to kill me because it's just like lubricant everywhere and vibrators <laughs> everywhere and my roommate's mom came to visit and she was like, what's going on here? <laughs> I was like, I promise we're not running like, you know, a sex ring. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's a legitimate business. And then, <laughs> and then in selling third party product, we realized that a lot of these prices were really overpriced for what they were. And the more we got into the industry, the more we realized that similar to a lot of brands that sell direct to consumer like Warby Parker and Casper, this is an industry that's extremely fragmented and almost all manufacturers are selling through a distributor who's taking a 40% cut of the margin before reallocating it to the retailers or end consumer. And so we realized that if we were able to cut out the distributor, make our own products and sell directly to customers, we could offer a better quality product at a lower price. And so then the hurdle became, how do we raise enough money to actually make our own products, which is a whole a whole nother we'll story. We'll get into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but so that was you, kind of the iteration of how the business changed over time. Did you have to raise money before you manufactured your own products or what, mm-hmm. what, was, what came first? Okay. Yeah. The order quantities were just so high and the unit economics like even if you can find a manufacturer to do like a small run in like the hundreds as opposed to the thousands the unit economics are going to be too expensive it's going to cost you you know 50 60 dollars to make the product as opposed to 30 and so for us we had to raise enough money to where we could manufacture a whole subset of products because we couldn't just do one like we wanted to go to market with 20 because um, over because we sold over two thousand different SKUs at that point, wow. so we really acutely knew what products and at what price point and what features because we've been doing this for years now um, and knew what sold and what didn't. So it was a matter of just convincing investors that this was that this wasn't some crazy you know category to invest in. What was your revenue at that point when you knew you had to pivot and? launch your own products? And then how did you share that with investors to prove your case that this is a real business? Totally. And I tell young, not young, they're not young, but I, I tell people who are early out in their mm-hmm. in their startup um, the same thing all the time, which is like it's all based on revenue. So we were doing about 50 to 75K a month in revenue before we could even get a meeting. And wow. by the time we closed our seed round, we were doing about 100K a month. Um, which definitely changed over time. Like we are not a fairy tale story. Like we st- we stocked out of product and then we didn't have anything to sell. So there are lots of hurdles along the way. But I think proving to investors that we had traction and demand was the most important thing to closing. How around. did you find your first investor? Just sheer relentlessness. I mean, every single person that told me no, of which there were hundreds, plural, um, and those are just the people that actually responded. Uh, I would ask them, okay, well, if it's not a good fit for you, do you know anyone? And and through finding the courage to ask that question at the end of every no, I eventually was introduced to Paige Craig at Arena Ventures who got it and and was our lead investor in our seed round. How much did you raise that first round? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated story because we raised 1.5, but 500,000 of that was from a VC called Binary um, where one of the partners – was accused of sexually harassing um, close to a dozen different women. And so then I had to make the tough decision of like, do I keep this $500,000 that took me two and a half years to raise or do I give it back and ultimately decided to give it back. So 
we ended up once we gave that back raising one million. But then because we gave that back, we had this amazing woman out of London who was a partner at a fund called Manzanita Capital. Her name is Barbara Donahue. Step up and say, I will take their allocation. I'm so proud that you did this and I will bring in other investors with it. So we ended up ultimately raising in our seed round 2.7 million. Can you share how much you gave away of the company? Um, uh, I would I would have to go back and look uh, to see because it was a step function yeah, yeah. where we raised at different valuations. But I know relative to other startups, our valuation, given what we were doing in, re- in revenue, was substantially lower because of our category because it was just so hard to get people to invest in vibrator lubricants and accessories that I, I found out from other founders who were like pre-product that they were raising at a valuation that was even higher than I was, which was disheartening. But at the time, it had been two and a half years of trying to raise. And I was just, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. But um, I, I encourage founders to get the deal done. And, and if you're going to be a stickler over valuation, I just think of all the battles you're going to have to fight ultimately, like – debatable whether that's one that's worth all the time and energy. Coming up, you'll hear Polly share her personal journey of how she got to this point in her business. And what's next? Plus, team roles and the dynamics of co-founders. So Stephanie and I get asked this question a lot. How do you decide how to divide up the responsibilities between you and your co-founder? I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm like a psychopath about people having autonomy um, over roles and responsibilities. And I think one of the things that's really hard about startups naturally is that it begins to feel like you ultimately become friends with the people you work with. And I think there's this tendency to want to do everything by committee, right? And so you have to kind of coach the people, be it senior level leadership members of the team or or more junior staff that like they have to kind of do it on their own like we can't be a company where everybody's kind of doing everything for my co-founder Sarah Jane her whole background was in the creative so she's like an insane copywriter she knows everything about photo shoots um she's great at design I mean she just was so good at that. And there's so much work when it comes to that brand identity specific to what we're trying to achieve at Unbound that it was just natural for her to own that. Um, For me, it was more so about growth, marketing, back end, like things like that. Um, And then our COO. So we're kind of divided into those three organizational buckets where it's creative, um, growth and marketing, and then operations. And so everything kind of stems from that. And I'm sure as we grow and evolve, that will spread in terms of like who's managing what. Um, And then product development and technology kind of cuts across all of our organizations. Um, But we really pride ourselves on giving people – I think people just really want to take pride in their work. And I think that there's nothing that kills a culture faster than micromanagement, which ultimately comes down to trust. So you have to embed into your hiring process what are the values we need to identify in the candidates that are going to work here so that we can trust them to do their job without ever having to worry about, like, are they on track? Are they off track? Are they doing this for the right reason? Have they set KPIs? Like, all of that stuff. So the thing where 
really just psychotic about is our hiring process. Like we have a 20 page um, document that we set up. Tell before. us all about this. Yeah, and yeah. can you send us, a, can you send us this document? Totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy to, cause it's, it's really hard. I think in the early days, especially you're just so grateful for like, and you can't pay people. So you're just, you'll take anybody. And I think one of the hardest shifts to make is like going from being desperate for help to then being in a position where you can selectively choose what people are building your company. And it's essential to make that shift, which which ultimately means letting people go. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was, you know, before we closed our seed round, there was this female founder group that I was a part of. And this amazing female founder spoke to us once and she looked at us and she was like, every single person on your team right now with perhaps the exception of your co-founder, you will fire at some point because you will get to a point where like they either outgrow the role or more, more, the more probable situation is the role will outgrow them. And so I think that it's hiring is like the most important thing founders need to focus on once you have the money to actually pay people. So we really, as a company early on to find our values and our values are just three, I think companies that have like 10 values, it's like nobody's ever going to remember that. So ours are uh, resiliency, uh, scrappy slash resourcefulness and empathy. And the first phone screen focuses on asking questions around those values. And then from there, we develop case studies. And I can tell you the most efficient filtering mechanism is giving someone a case study. And we pay people for their time too, so they don't feel like we're trying to take advantage of them. Like historically I would interview with startups and they'd be like, yeah, we need you to do this eight hour case study. And I'm like, that's free labor, like pay me for my time. So we pay people, but like it becomes very evident, like which candidates are putting in all the time and effort. How much do you pay them? We pay them 20 to $25 an hour. So, um, it's really important that, that we're not just trying to get free work out of them and that they know that and that we value their time. Um, but you immediately can tell because there are people that will send back like a one pager that has like just bullets and a bunch of pictures and you're like, yeah, this is not at all on par where it needs to be. And then there are people that like put their heart and their soul into it and it's like, okay, this is somebody that really wants this position. So I recommend to founders all the time like put together the rubric, create different interview processes. In each interview, if you're not going into that knowing exactly what you're trying to evaluate, you need to reschedule the interview because – you come out of it and you're like, yeah, that I felt good, but like that's so not objective. And then later on when things go wrong with that employee, you're going to just like be kicking yourself in the ass for not setting that that criteria up front. And it's a ton of work and it feels like you don't have time to do it. But if you just invest the time up front, it will forever more pay off. When did you realize you needed to do this? When I made like really terrible <laughs> hires. Did you ever read the book, The Who? is it called Who? No. Oh, so – That book speaks to what you're describing right now, that each interview has to be about a set of skill or function that you want to, you know, evaluate them for. It's a really, really great book, but it sounds like you already are doing all the right things. Yeah. I also love The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz because I've just had to lay off a lot of people and it makes me want to like throw – I mean, literally, it's it's the worst – experience in the world and you're sitting there and it's infinitely worse for the person on the other side of the table but it's just it's miserable and I think once you go through that even just once or a couple times you realize like I I want to do whatever it takes to not be here again or at least you know not as frequently like as absolutely necessary so now that you have this hiring process has anyone who was not a right fit for the company slipped through the cracks 
I mean, I think I think that there yes is the short answer. I think that there's also this unspoken thing that I really struggle with as especially like a female entrepreneur, which is like you can't have it all and like life stage. And I think that that changes for people over time as it should. But there is the reality of like if you work at a startup, it's just not going to be a nine to six gig. Mm -hmm. And I think it's totally understandable and fair to want that at different parts of your life. But I struggle sometimes with people who want to have the nine to six, but also want to have a job where they're like building something and working on something that they're so passionate about and they're the decision maker and they're able to like come up with an idea and implement it. Like the unfortunate reality is like we live in a just era where you just you can't have both and you have to make sacrifices. And I think that's one of the hardest things is people think that they want the lifestyle. But then when it comes to like having to come in on a Saturday or a Sunday, like you can tell when people are resentful and it's like, I shouldn't be the bad guy because I like, was Why'd really... you sign up for this? You already told them right. in the interview. Because I think people oftentimes are like, yeah, how bad will it be? And it's like, especially for us, we see a ton of seasonality. So I think I feel like such a Grinch because during when everybody else is like on vacation, on holiday, it's like we work like everybody's up at 8 a.m. and on on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, because it's like our busiest shopping day all year. And so I think it's it's I've gotten better about being really radically transparent about that in like the first interview, which is like just asking people like, are you ready at, at this stage of your life to like be a part of an early small startup? And you can immediately tell if people have, like, really thought it through or not um, because it is hard and it asks a lot of people. But I also think that, like, you get a lot out of it, um, at least I hope. <laughs> Polly, can you share with us your inspiration for starting the business? I know you had, you know, medical challenges when you were a bit younger that really led to this being so important to you. Yeah, I think it was – so for me, it's and it's amazing because I think every single person that works in Unbound has their own personal story as – to how they found themselves caring about this experience and category. For me, I was diagnosed with uh, colon, colorectal cancer um, at the age of 21. And the first part of my treatment plan was to go through radiation. And my doctors sat me down and were like, you know, you're never going to be able to have children as a result of radiation treatment. And yeah, it was that was really sad. It's like still sad but um nobody that was it like that was full stop the whole conversation and the reality was I went on to go through menopause which is like a significant life change and the doctors and didn't tell you that was going to happen they didn't tell me that was going to happen and I think it was and and I love I love and I'm so grateful for the doctors that I had because they saved my life but I think it's a it was more of a reflection on society at large which is women are viewed in this dichotomy of either being mothers and you know like it's your fertility and menstruation and, and all this stuff or the hypersexualization of women on the other end. And I think for me it was kind of like why isn't just sexual wellness considered – like where's the middle of just like this is a part of your life. It should be treated as such. And also I think for men it is treated that way more generally. Like I think if you were you know, a male patient and you were looking at the equivalent of going through erectile dysfunction, like the doctors would absolutely sit you down and talk about that. So it was that coupled with then actually my first shopping experience of ending up at, you know, a Hustler Hollywood on the side of the highway uh, next to the airport and just feeling really embarrassed and intimidated. And I think as I moved to New York and, you know, was surrounded by more liberal women because I grew up in the Midwest, um, I realized that, like, 
it doesn't have to be that way and that there should be a brand name that is as mainstream as Viagra or Trojan, but is focusing on women, femme, and Mm non-binary people instead of, you know, men and and the male gaze and the sexual experience through the lens of do you have an erection, yes or no, and like that sex beginning to end. And so I think everyone at Unbound is just so passionate about redefining what – sexuality looks like and and giving everyone permission to define it for themselves. Coming up, some surprises and a brainstorm. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entreprenista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search Entreprenistas. We really wanted to create a community for entrepreneurs to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed. It's going to be an exciting 2019, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. What surprised you the most about being a female CEO? Oh my God, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, there's, hey, there's so much. I think the thing that I at least struggle with a lot that I think a lot of people struggle with is like accepting that you're not going to be liked all the time and that you're the disciplinarian and that you're kind of like the bad guy a lot of the time. And, and not that you're bad, but it's just kind of like, You're a little bit of a lone wolf, and I think you have to really build a support system that is not within your company. Like, you cannot air out your dirty laundry to the people you're managing. You need to find other female founders to support you, who you can vent to and relate to. And I think oftentimes, as female founders, we are scared to ask for help. I know I was, at least. And I think... So that's really tough, which is like you are you do have to go it alone, which I think also why the the co-founder relationship is a really crucial one is having somebody else that has your back when you're trying to make really tough decisions. The other thing is just how ridiculous fundraising is and that it's really a still very much archaic process where you have to be a part of a certain network to even get the warm introductions to raise money. And it's bullshit. And it frustrates me to no end because it really still is based on, I mean, I sent hundreds and hundreds of cold emails to investors that had our pitch deck who ultimately ended up investing in the company. And when they wrote the check, they were like, how did I not see this deal earlier? How did I not see your company? You guys have grown and like your numbers are amazing. And I was like, dude, I've emailed you eight times. Like check your inbox. Like I think that was what was so surprising and frustrating is that like it really is based on who you know. And I think that that is part of the reason why 2% of venture funding went to women in 2016 and 0.2% went to women of color is because you have to like break your way into those networks, um, which is why community podcast, education, all of this stuff is so crucial because I had no idea that that was the most important thing. I just thought my numbers are strong. Why am I not getting meetings? Why am I not getting funding? We actually met initially last year at the Million Dollar Women's Summit and that's what Julia is trying to do. She's trying to help women get to a million dollars in revenue and more and learn how to raise money and pitch and put these incredible women in front of of the right people because you have to network. If you don't Mm -hmm. network – 
You're not going to. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like you don't get to just have an idea and then expect a massive check, right? Like to what we were talking about earlier, there's so many founders that I meet with where I'm like, look, until you're doing 50K a month in revenue, like fundraising is a distraction. Like get to where you have numbers that are strong that you feel really good about and then go out and fundraise because fundraising is a full-time job. And if you go out too early, people are going to see you, hear you, and then by the time you get the numbers you want, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I already looked at that deal, not for us. So you want to make sure you're not going out prematurely because it, it's you're just going to get rejected. And also the rejection is just like emotionally like exhausting where you can only get told no so many times and wake up the next day and be like, let's do it all yeah. over again. You know? <laughs> so, so, yeah, fundraising is is hard. Uh, we actually have a surprise for you. This is something that we like to do with our guests. We we like to surprise and delight. It's something we also advise our clients to do on their social media channels. So we got you some flowers oh. and a gift underneath your seat. So we looked at your like social this is media. <laughs> surprise! Oh my god! I feel like I, I want to pay that you like flowers. So, I love so we them. got you some These as a beautiful. thank you to being our special guest today. Oh, that's so And we sweet. have a little uh, goodie bag for you. All fun entrepreneurs. Oh my god, this stuff. is a, you guys have swag game on point. <laughs> this is amazing. So enjoy. Thank you. Happy early holidays. You're awesome. <laughs> no, this is oh my god, I literally am on the last page of my notebook. Perfect. This See, it's is meant perfect. to be. I love the marble, you guys. Your branding's on point. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you well, so much. Well, it has much. to be because we own a marketing agency, so if it wasn't, we'd be in trouble. I mean, I want to ask you guys a million questions, but I guess that's not the point. Well, actually, that was <laughs> yes, a great you segue. Can. That was a really great segue because we also like to do a brainstorm with our guests where we put 60 seconds on the clock oh and you can just pick our brains about yes. basically anything. Oh, my God. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. What do you need help with? What are you working on right now? Okay. So the thing that we could use help with is how do you guys feel about – I just learned this term, but it's, I think it's called whitelisting, where because we can't like pay Instagram to take out an ad because they're because the patriarchy, whatever. Um, how do you feel about it? Do you think it's a good channel? Do you think it's viable? Yes, but it's possible, and we would have to check with Facebook that if you're not allowed to advertise about that, it might not get approved for the influencer to advertise either. Right. So that we'd have to look into that, but potentially. That is a way around it to at least try to see right. if that can get approved. Have you tried it yet? No, but it's like something where we were like, oh, this because we have such this a strong right. influencer yeah. like community component to our business that we were like, why don't some of the posts that they put up get you know tens of thousands of likes? And we're like, why aren't we promoting like that post it. instead yes. of trying to still promote our own? So the challenge with that is actually figuring out with the influencer how to get them to give you access to do it because uh, we have done this for our clients, but that's I would say that is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. You have to get them on the phone, walk them through the process because this is so new to them, mm -hmm. and the the in the back end of Facebook, it's a little bit complicated, but. It works. Do you – but, like, I feel like we wouldn't do it on – I hate Facebook. I feel like face. do you think Facebook's dying? You have to do it through Facebook if you want to run it through Instagram. Uh, yeah. See, you do so much. I don't know. <laughs> we're just, like, blacklisted. Um, <laughs> so we're going to test whitelisting. You're blacklisted, so, yeah. so you want to Call us. We'll set up a yeah. time. We'll walk you through the – We'll walk you through the process, and we'll test it, and we'll see if you can get it get it approved. Do you advise people to, like, go all in on – because we really only invest in Instagram. Like, we're just like, yes, we have a presence on Twitter, and yes, we post, post stuff on Facebook, but it, like, dies at the bottom of the algorithm. So do you tell people to, like, 
equally invest in all three or to just double down on one? It depends on the business and who they're looking to target. But typically our clients are really focused on, you know, one or two platforms Mm -hmm. like Facebook and Instagram or Instagram and Pinterest, depending on their business and who they're looking to target. Question for you. Are you able to – have you tried advertising on Instagram and that won't get approved either? No. no. Assuming it doesn't. Like name a social media channel and we are – You've tried on Snapchat? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't understand how condoms can be advertised and then you're – what if you're not showing the product? That, oh, girl. It's if you're just we, sending it to the... The ads that we've taken out, we did one of a photo of puppies just to be like, yeah. I think it has it has nothing to do with the content of the ad. It has everything to do the with website. the company and the website, which is bullshit. What if you <laughs> just... Because you have a blog, but what if you have a separate landing page for the blog and you're just sending people to a blog about health and wellness? The conversion's garbage. Yeah. And I think increasingly conversion on Facebook and Instagram is only getting harder. And so, if, like... Our business is driven by vibrators, and if we can't – But what if you're just sending people to a blog? So from Mm -hmm. Facebook, you're sending people to a blog, and then you can use that pool of people to retarget throughout the internet, so not on social platforms, Mm -hmm. but now you're retargeting them across all the the platforms they're on or all the websites they're on. Yeah, we're also banned from AdRoll and Taboola and all the retargeting Oh, girl, we got to do lots of uh, influencer in-person events. That's (laughs) That's it. That is what has grown our business. And I'm not trying to be a, like, womp womp, but it's just like we've tried everything. Thing. So, so I want to know what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? I think it's about uplifting everyone around you. Like that is the thing that I think I get the most energy out of. Like just last Saturday, I went to the ladies get paid conference, and I like walked in and I was like, "Giving up my Saturday, I'm only going to be here for an hour." And I stayed for like five hours because it's just. The the palpable power of other women, feminine, non-binary people who are just, like, creating the change they want to see in the world is the most energizing force that I've ever experienced in my life. So I think being an entrepreneurista is just uplifting, using your platform to help every woman around you who comes after you up onto that platform with you because that's the only way we're going to change the status quo. So. I love that. I just got the chills, Polly. Oh, stamp. Polly, where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, check out your website and buy your amazing products? Yeah. My personal Instagram is garbage. It's just me. Like, I have this one impersonation I love to do of this, like, middle-aged woman from Boston. <laughs> so, like, don't follow that. But Unbound is just unboundbabes.com. Our handle's at unboundbabes. And we'd be happy to give all the audience 20% off their first purchase with the code entrepreneurista. Amazing. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. We've all learned so much. And I think Courtney and I are going to be taking all of these hiring tips right back to right back to social live when when we leave here right now. And thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll be back with another incredible entrepreneurista next week. Until then, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. Entrepreneista is produced by Mouth Media Network for Socialfly. Copyright 2019, Socialfly, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.